0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: This is Larry Lessig. This is another episode of Another Way. Today, we're going to talk to Lee Drutman for policy wonks and geeks. He's a familiar name, but maybe not to everyone. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the New America Foundation. He's a fellow in the political reform program, which is an extremely important part of New America, which is one of the most exciting think tanks in Washington. The book we're going to focus on today is his latest book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, the case for multi-party democracy in America, which came out last year from Oxford. Um, But he's also really well-known for a book that I admire greatly uh, from 2015, The Business of America is Lobbying, which unpacks in a powerful way the economy of influence that lobbyists are at the center of and uh, complements, really, not in an e-sense of that word, but in an i-sense of that word. Um, um, Or I'm sorry, this is the mistake that I can't make. Not in the i-sense of the word, but the e-sense of the word Um, complements um uh the work that I had put out about uh Republic lost and the role of lobbying inside of the corruption of our Congress. Um he's been a winner of the American Political Science Association's Robert Dahl Award, even though this book is quite critical of some of the assumptions of Robert Dahl. And in 2021, this year, he was named Washington in the group of Washington's most influential people by Washington magazine. Um This is a a really interesting conversation. We have ending up with a question mark, an acknowledged point that he's not sure of, which I'm uh, even more excited about because it shows a great mind to know exactly where there's more thinking to be done. Um, So stay tuned. Lee, thanks so much for talking to us. So you and I have um, been wandering in the same space for a long time, and I was really struck. I, I was struck by your first book, which, of course, was extraordinary in unpacking the economy of influence of lobbying in America. Um, but this book, too, um, uh, Breaking uh, the Two-Party Doom Loop, Um Uh, is also quite important and profound in some ways that it helps us understand our past. So I want to walk us through it um, kind of like the, you know, average um, thinks they're informed but are actually not terribly informed about our past and why that matters today kind of listener. Um, um, And so I want to begin by just, uh, you know, presenting what seems like an obvious question to many people. Haven't we always had two parties in America?
0: Uh, Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, yes, in the sense that we have always had the Democratic Party. Well, at least we've had two parties. We've had the Democratic Party going back to 1830. We've had the Republican Party going back to the 1850s. And so... Yes, the, these parties are are very old, older than most democracies in the world. But for a long time, they were these you know really broad catch-all parties that didn't really stand for all that much. Uh, they you know for a while they were just these uh, sort of overlapping coalitions of many local and state parties uh, at a time in which national politics was secondary to local and state politics. And then, you know, for a good portion of the 20th century, I would say we had something more like a a four-party system with liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats alongside liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. And that really began to flatten out in the 90s. And I would say that, you know, really, it's only, we're only a decade into having a, a genuine two-party system with two parties that are truly distinct and represent very different and most importantly non-overlapping coalitions. So uh, this, is, this is something new and distinct and I think it's a, a core way to think about some of the uh, really hard problems that are uh, bedeviling our democracy right now.
1: So to think about what the parties were, why would you have been a Democrat in like 1910? Like, what, what what was it to be a Democrat or a Republican in our history that distinguishes it to today? Because today most people have a very clear ideological sense or a sense of the ideological commitments of these parties, even if you know geeks will argue that the ideology is pretty incoherent. But but you know we have a sense of like what it is to be a Republican, what it is to be a Democrat. What, what did it mean to be a Republican in 1910 or a Democrat in 1910?
0: Well, 1910 is actually a very interesting year to uh, to ask that question. Uh, and I don't know if you picked that on purpose or or somewhat randomly. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of the middle of the progressive era. And, you know, there there's a, a sense in which the parties are transitioning in that, you know, from... The the Gilded Era into really the early 20th century, uh, politics was really machine politics. It was really patronage politics, and so you'd be a Democrat because you know your family was Democrat, and you know if the Democrat uh, won, that would that might mean that your family got some patronage jobs, and you know there was also a real sense that politics was also about group identities. So depending on where you lived uh, and your religion or your ethnicity, you know, you were just going to be a Democrat or a Republican because that was what people like you did. And it wasn't really substantively about policy so much as it was being part of a club. And you can still find these kind of Democratic and Republican clubs in some cities, Uh, But national politics was not, you know, hadn't been about all that much, and even local politics was just about local politics. Uh, So, you know, it it wasn't until that era in which there had sort of progressive reformers who said, oh, these parties are just, you know, corrupt machines, they're, you know, controlled by rich plutocrats, uh, for rich plutocrats, and the way to solve the problem of that is to just, you know, get rid of parties as much as we can, make everything nonpartisan, and encourage independent thinking, uh, which I I think has always proved a a bit of a chimera and an elusive dream in the American reform tradition. Uh, But, you know, it really wasn't in Until the new deal when the the modern parties started to really stand for uh distinct visions of the economy, and it wasn't until the post civil rights era when the two parties really began to stand for distinct uh visions of America's cultural identity,
1: yeah, I'm going to follow that up, but then I want to go back to the Civil War period for a second but um let's follow up with that in particular because what's striking in the history that you tell and others have told um uh, I don't know as powerfully, but have have tried to cover as well, is the real sense in the post-New uh, Deal period that the problem with American parties was that they didn't have clear ideologies, like the American Political Science Association runs these studies to try to unpack the um, way in which we might make parties ideological so that voters, when they went to vote, would have a clear vision like, here's why I'm a Republican or here's why I'm a Democrat. And this muddy, uh, non-ideological party system that was the the character of partisan politics at that period was just viewed to be a mistake. Now, it's kind of hard to Imagine a period where what you'd be arguing for is more ideological purity, but how, what's the most charitable way to understand what they thought they were doing?
0: Well, I mean, I think they were actually doing something quite important, which is that they were trying to give voters clear choices so that when people went to the ballot box, they could say, you know, this is my vision of government. And I'd like to be able to vote definitively for that. The other thing, if you, you know, read that 1950 APSA report towards a more responsible two-party system, is that you know there's a sense that the problems that American government would have to deal with, particularly after World War II, as America became the the you know leading democracy in the world, were going to be of a scale uh, that the uh, parochial party system that was really, you know, about log world politics and local interests was not going to be able to handle. So what the, the folks behind that report, you know, were trying to do was to, uh, you know, really elevate a vision of democracy that gave voters clear choices and also gave, uh, you know, a, a way of structuring clear party programs that would be up to the challenges that they thought a uh, country demanded. Um, you know, in, in addition, you know, there was a, a frustration among a lot of liberals who were behind that report that the party system of that era had you know, really suppressed uh, civil rights, which was you know, a, a, a very important critique and you know, something that we should be careful of to, lest we nostalgize the kind of muddy bipartisanship of the 40s and 50s is that it came at a uh, cost of keeping civil rights off the national agenda. Uh, So I I think there was certainly a justification. And also, if you read that report, there's this sense that, you know, couldn't possibly be the case that we would have these very distinct ideological uh, parties and that we would have these cumulative identity conflicts. And the, the author's of that report noted that that would be terrible. It would be a disaster, but they just couldn't fathom that that would be the case because there was nothing in the American political experience that uh, had uh, led them to that. And there was a sense that, you know, the the two party system uh, was going to inherently be moderate and, and, uh, you know, it could work together. I mean, I think the, the, this is, this is, and I should say that this was not a, a new idea. I mean, it was a, tradition in political science back to the origins of, of Woodrow Wilson, who had looked across the Atlantic Ocean and seen what they perceived as an orderly uh, British system, uh, Westminster system, in which the parties were coherent and semi-responsible. And they you know, thought that American, uh, the American Constitution had made a mistake in trying to separate these powers and that what, what you know, parties had done was to kind of create some order of a inherently chaotic and Byzantine system.
1: Yeah, this is the point. You make this well, but this is a point that um, it's hard in, in the theory to understand its significance. But, you know, to have two clear parties in a parliamentary system where if one side wins, they get to deliver. They get get to say, here are the 10 things we're going to do. And at the next election, you can say, how many of those 10 things did you do? Um that's very different from the American system, where because we have such a powerful president who is not directly tied to Congress, you have this almost random potential for a party to actually deliver on what they say they're going to do. I mean, they can deliver in principle, assuming you've got unitary control between the presidency and Congress. But if you don't have that, then they can be held up by the party that's controlling Congress or held up by the president. And and the whole idea of measuring a party based on how successful they are at achieving what they promised to do just seems kind of weird in our context. So you, can, so you can understand why they would love the Westminster system, because they could see it could achieve things. But it seems like nobody's really thinking through carefully what it would mean to try to transplant that into this very strong presidential system with, um, with a Congress that obviously doesn't have to go along.
0: Yeah, I think that's certainly true, and I think the idea was that what they had hoped was that they would kind of bridge that separation of powers by having stronger party committees. Uh, but you know, I, I think there's even a, even a deeper critique of that, which is that the Westminster system is really uh, not the idealized version that that these reformers thought it was. Uh, and, you know, that in having a, a two party system in which voters, you know, can sort of adjudicate the performance of a party in government versus a party out of government requires a level of reserve that voters are not attached to the political parties, but rather just kind of stand a- away from politics and observe performance, which is a very hard thing to do. Given that so much of policy making uh, happens over long periods of time, and the effects of policies happen over long periods of time. And so, you know, it's, it's not like we have these neat, uh, it's, not, it's not like, you know, hiring somebody, you know, to, to run a department and then, you know, in which they have total autonomy. Uh, and then evaluating the performance. I mean, evaluating the performance of, of a party in government is is extremely difficult, uh, even if people are independent. But the reality is, of course, that if the parties are genuinely different, then people tend to form attachments to those parties, which then makes them skeptical of the other party's promises and more likely to cut their party uh, an extra uh, bit of slack. And so the whole premise of of accountability then uh, just kind of blows up. I mean, that's always been the promise of a two-party system is that it allows for accountability, but the accountability only works if the parties are not really distinct enough for voters to have loyalty, in which case then it's hard to choose one of the two parties and you're, I mean, you're just electing, you know, a party to manage things and then the parties are kind of indistinguishable. So you're just going back and forth. Uh, I mean, the whole uh, theory is, you know, somewhat uh, incoherent when you actually probe at it.
1: Yeah, because if people have an identity that's associated with their party, where they call themselves a Republican, not because they have a list of policies which they've Examine themselves internally and they discover they like, but instead they just identify with the idea of a Republican or idea of a Democrat. Then, this whole idea of like punishing the Republicans because they've not been sufficiently Republican is just kind of crazy, which is what the never Trumpers discovered to their great shock when a president would come along and call himself a Republican and then reject some of the most important principles of the then dominant Republican Party. And it didn't seem to matter to most of the people in the party, only the you know, the kind of intellectual elite who noticed that this was true, um, which I think brings out the point that you're making, that um, the whole idea that this dynamic is going to impose discipline on the basis of policy becomes um, fa- uh, a fantasy if policy isn't the issue, but instead it's just identity.
0: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Or you're relying on some thin sliver of... Uh, "Quote unquote swing voters who you know are somehow going to decide the fate of the nation, and often these you know swing voters are you know the least politically engaged, uh, and you know kind of are make their minds up on some sort of you know feeling or mood or or character or just you know uh, some some idiosyncratic uh, feeling, so." I mean, it, it seems a, a very strange way to run a democracy to say, you know, here, here's going to be two teams, and they're going to be very locked in, and then we're going to let a you know a handful of you know random folks who are who are the least politically engaged and the kind of most most all over the place somehow render that judgment.
1: Yeah. Now, what one thing that's not as pro- prominent in the book, but I but I I think it complements your. Analysis is when you layer on top of that a fragmented media landscape, where the media themselves become politically identified, so that there's a um, uh, ideological identity to uh, one side, Fox News, another ide- ideological identity to the other side, MSNBC, and um, and CNN, kind of bouncing in between, and they themselves profit from reinforcing the identity, It's it makes it even more difficult to imagine the political process with these two polarized parties kind of adjudicating on the basis of good policy as opposed to who's just going to be more effective in blowing up the other side.
0: Yeah, I, I think the the media is an accelerant of this binary polarization, you know, particularly having a partisan media. I mean, in a lot of other advanced democracies, there is a, a strong public media that, you know, really kind of sets a set of shared facts that everybody in the country can kind of work around. Whereas, you know, I mean, I guess we have public media, but it's mostly associated with the left. Uh, And so what you've seen is, you know, there's certainly a bifurcation of uh, information streams and the conservatives basically over the last 30 years created an entirely separate uh, world of media enterprises because they felt that the mainstream media had a a so-called liberal bias. Now, at the same time, I, I think, you know, it's important to understand that You know, through most of American history, we had partisan media, and that it's really only the the post-war period that had this unique moment in which we had uh, sort of broad, nonpartisan media, and that was, you know, some ways a a function of there being uh, just one newspaper in a lot of cities that kind of wanted to appeal to everybody. Kind of being three major news networks that were trying to appeal together, as well as you know the fact that the politics was uh, you know basically you know kind of centrist and moderate, uh, and so there there was kind of a, a shared middle. And now th- there is no shared middle, and there's a, a media model that says you know we're going to judge every single article on its content independently, and the more clicks or views or whatever you get, uh, the more revenue you're going to get. So there, there's a clear media incentive to push the most incendiary emotional stories because those are the ones that get the most shares. And, you know, th- this is distinct from the fake news problem, uh, which is, you know, I, I think you know another thing to think about, but you know it's 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 an outrage problem, and I think that's uh, uh, that's a clear dynamic here that the you know the, the media has a you know a, a business that's built around outrage.
1: Yeah, I, but it's important. I mean, you're exactly right. Marcus Pryor, of course, calls this the period of broadcast democracy, and I think we don't do enough to recognize how significant the image of media produced during the era of broadcast democracy is to us even today like we measure everything against this golden age which of course of course was obviously not a golden age in a lot of ways i mean all sorts of perspectives were not there all sorts of problems were suppressed all sorts of lies were sustained for for many many cycles but but the point is it was at least a dynamic where there was a norm of neutrality in the press I tried to drive them to present things in a way that would allow all sides to see the story. And that had a significant effect. If you watch Richard Nixon's impeachment or the, or the popularity of Richard Nixon across the whole of his, his presidency, you know, for the first period before Watergate ex- appears, um, Nixon is loved as much as Donald Trump was loved by Republicans. He's hated by Democrats, not as much as Trump was, but, you know, he was not liked by Democrats. Um, But then just at the moment that Watergate uh, really uh, crescendos and, you know, six months before he resigns, you begin to see a fall off in Nixon's support with Republicans and Democrats in a perfectly correlated manner. There's like a story that's being told. The whole world is listening to the same story. It's having a similar effect on everybody. And the consequence is when Nixon's popularity among Republicans crosses the 50% line, 50 line, that's it. He's gone. But if you look at the same thing with Donald Trump, of course, there's no change in support among Republicans for Donald Trump or hatred by Democrats of Donald Trump during the whole of this administration, because, of course, we're living in radically different stories. Um, Now, it's true, you're right, to say that, of course, before broadcast media, we had polarized partisan media. That was the nature of media all the way back to the beginning of media. But the real difference is the public was invisible. Back then, polling only gets born in the mid 1930s. So we have no real way to know what the public, who the public is. I mean, you know, politicians think they know who the public is because they get elected by the public. But it's not like constantly present in the debate that 78% of Republicans think X or 85% of Democrats think Y. And so the salience of the partisan division among the public isn't as important to policymaking as it is right now, which reinforces your really important point, that it just drives us to the place where politics is stalemated. You have an attitude of dominance on both sides, like we want to win and then send the other side to Siberia. That's that's our model of governing, um, as opposed to a model of governing which drove both sides or, as you idealize it, four sides to try to figure out how they're going to bring about a result that could actually advance anybody's or maybe hopefully our collective interest.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that's exactly right. You know, and I'd say another thing about the earlier era of partisan media is that, you know, it was intensely local in its focus. Uh, and, you know, in terms of the issues, you know, they were not issues over... Uh, you know, the, the identity of the nation in this sort of I mean there certain, I mean, certainly there were issues of, of immigration and, you know uh, stereotyping, but that was not the center of partisan politics. There was not a broad national culture war in which, uh, you know, large groups of Democrats or Republicans felt as though if a Democrat or a Republican won the presidency, then the soul of America would be forever uh, polluted and destroyed and irredeemable. Uh, Except for one
1: period. Except for one period, yes. (laughs) Yes. yes. (laughs) Right. So the one time when we actually had a visible national polarized debate was the time that led us into a civil war, um, where both sides had this national idea about what it meant for the other side to win. And when Lincoln did win, you know, one side said, that's it, we have to leave. Um, and so there could have been a kind of um, harbinger of like what politics was going to look like when we had these purely polarized and publicly visible or legible publics. Um, we, would, we, would, we would find ourselves in the middle of such a civil war, or as Biden has uh, termed it, an uncivil war, which is, of course, where we are right now.
0: Yeah, and you know that that 1850s period is you know a, a fascinating period. You know, in that it it's the moment in which the uh, compromise over slavery kind of unravels as slavery kind of becomes a, a central issue as westward expansion uh, you know forces that issue onto the national stage. The Whig Party falls apart over it. Uh, and you know, Lincoln wins the 1860 election which is a four-way election with uh, less than 40% of the popular vote and the southern he's not even on the ballot in, in most southern states and you know the southern states say you know well if this is the future of America then there's no place for us where our our voices are not going to be heard and you know there's this way in which the you know i mean i don't think anybody expected the, that the civil war would wind up with uh, you know a four year you know bloody uh, protracted struggle that it was just going to be a rebellion that the union was going to put the put down but as as it kind of expands you know it becomes more and more about emancipation and about civil rights and that you know many many northern northerners who you know wouldn't have cared all that much about slavery or you know or the the civil rights of of black voters you know start to care a lot more about it and many southerners who you know not not the majority of the majority of Southerners were not slaveholders, you know, start to feel like their whole way of life and their whole identity is, you know, at stake. And, you know, the, the more you get dug into that, the more you feel like you have to rationalize that you are part of some greater struggle in order uh, to say that it's, it's all worth it. And, you know, I think you can see a, a similar dynamic playing out now in American politics.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, now I want to move to what I, what I think is su- most surprising to people when they think about when they recognize it. I mean, I think your evidence is pretty compelling. But when you think about the fact that, in some sense, the most successful modern period of American democracy is a period where, effectively, we have four parties or there's four shadow parties under the guise of Democrats and Republicans. Um, and you have this era where um, that fact produces a certain discipline among members of Congress. So Lyndon Johnson, when he was majority leader of the Senate, um, was said by um, his press secretary, George Reedy, to have never been willing to bring a, quote, democratic bill to the floor of the Senate. Like every bill had to be a bill that in some sense at least presented itself as speaking for both parties. But of course, it was easier to do that because the parties were diverse as opposed to, you know, there was liberal and conservative in each party. But the point that you bring out, and I think it's so powerful, is, is that that actually changes the game for being a member of Congress. Like, you realize the only thing you can be doing, you don't speak for the nation as the liberal Republican or as the conservative Democrat. You don't plausibly say, I represent America. You just say, I just represent the people like me, and we're going to do what we can to, to get something done. So to do that, we're going to have to strike a deal, and we're going to have to strike a deal with people we don't agree with. But that's just the nature of politics. Um and that whole like, conception is kind of almost traitorous on both the right and the left right now. Like the idea that you would say to people, you know, your job is to strike deals with people you don't agree with to figure out what we're going to do to make America better. They would say, No, no, no. I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to hold. I'm going to hold firm on my ideals. Um, so, is it the four partiness that made that possible, or is it something not as structural that made that
0: possible? No, I, I think it's fundamentally the the, the heterogeneity of both political parties and the overlapping nature of uh, their, you know, the ideological coalitions within the parties. Because, I mean, the, the important thing is, is that that shapes how Congress operates. I mean, if, if you look at the, you know, the, the Congress of that era, you know, particularly the Senate, not, under, un, not only under LBJ, but also under uh, Mike Mansfield, who was the leader after that? This, you know, the Senate, uh, to to a large extent, the House is a, is a much more free flowing place, and the reason for that is that the, there's not a lot of opportunity for party discipline because there's very little that the party agrees on. So you know, the, r- the role of a leader is just to kind of, you know, play a little bit of traffic cop, not to have a very disciplined party agenda, because there is no disciplined party agenda, because there's not a whole lot that the party uh, entirety agrees on. Uh, and that creates a Congress that is much more committee-based and even subcommittee-based. Uh, and in that framework, there's a lot of opportunity for uh, legislators you know, across a broad spectrum to hash out Uh, you know, broad, uh, you know, bipartisan legislation that's not, you know, controlled by the party leaders. Now, what happens, you know, starting in the in the 70s is that there's a lot of pressure in the Democratic Party to start to purge some of the more conservative Democrats from committee positions. And that involves, you know, uh, some Delegation to party leadership in order to, uh, you know, structure uh, voting. Particularly, I mean, this this starts in the House, but then it it moves over to the the Senate, and you know, the idea is that you know we want strong leaders because you know most, most Democratic as the Democratic Party becomes a little bit more liberal, you know, we want Democratic Party to be able to pass more liberal bills, and that means that we can't let these, you know, Southern conservatives on committees bottle stuff up. Uh, we need to, to give, you know, power. And, you know, that that creates a sense among increasingly, you know, into the 80s among a growing number of conservative Republicans that, you know, their, their views are being shut out. And, you know, that's where Gingrich takes his oppositional energy. And the other important thing to understand about that period, you know, from the mid 60s, um, you know, really through the late 80s, is that that's a a period, you know, really starting in 68, in which it seems like Republicans kind of have a lock on the presidency. uh, And that Democrats, you know, have controlled the House, you know, for a long time, Democrats basically had unified control of the House. Uh, from 1932 up through uh, 1992, with a you know a few years of an of of Republican control in the 50s, uh, and you know so there there's a sense that this is just sort of the you know the divided government nature of the american people that they want you know president who's a republican who's going to be strong on foreign policy who's going to put some discipline on the spending of the congress but they also want democrats in congress who are going to make sure uh, that they spend on local programs and you have a lot of split districts i mean in in 1984 when reagan wins in a landslide and you know i mean an overwhelming landslide there's you know a still a very strong Democratic house and a lot of members in the house who are Democrats but represent districts that voted for Republicans. So you also have a lot of pressure for for you know Democrats and Republicans to work together there. And so you can do a major bill like the 1986 tax bill uh, and what's changed is that every election now is, you know up for grabs. There's more and more delegation uh, within both parties to the the leaders in you know, both the House and the Senate, uh, and so the leaders want to draw sharp distinctions between the two parties. If you're if you're in the uh, minority party, you don't want to compromise. You know McConnell famously said in 2010 that you know he he didn't want to be involved in the Affordable Care because he didn't want to give it the legitimacy of bipartisanship
1: yeah <clears throat> but but if you put together your two books you know I think there's a story of this is a very sexist word but let me use it the emasculation of members of Congress like so the first part of that story you've just described the way in the 70s there's a shift to leadership away from members so members, you know, used to be relatively independent, people who knew something, people who were there for a long time and became experts in a certain field, and they and they exercised their influence to kind of guide policy according to their judgment. But then that shifts to the leadership. And then the Gingrich revolution forces the change that you describe in, in the book about lobbying, where um, Gingrich immediately slashes the support for members of Congress from internal to Congress. And forces them to turn outwards to the lobbyists to figure out what the bills even mean or what they should be doing so that the locus of power is both shifting to leadership and then shifting outside of congress until we get to the kind of member of congress in the 1990s the modal member of congress in the 1990s is somebody who's spending half his or her time on a telephone calling people to raise money for their party as opposed to being a legislator who exercises judgment about what's actually in the interest of America and then of course in that context they have to be extremely loyal to their base the 2000s exacerbates that because to the extent you're raising money and you're raising money increasingly in small dollars you've got to you've got to sustain the image and it makes it harder and harder to be a more complicated subtle um, reflective member and easier to become you know either on the far left or on the far right so it's a slow destruction of who Congress people are that in some ways is some ways playing into the dynamic you're describing
0: well yes uh, absolutely um, and I mean the other the other thing that Gingrich importantly does in 1994 is is he nationalizes congressional elections so that it becomes very hard for individual members to run as sort of connected to a particular district or or place. And, you know, this uh, increasing nationalization of American party politics, you know, continues at pace, but that, it's fundamentally tied up with the money because what happens in the, you know, I mean, Gingrich is, you know, again, I, th- I think we sometimes tend to overrate Gingrich as a uh, transformative figure without understanding what he... The, the sort of context in which Gingrich arises, um, but, but you know, if we go back to the early eighties, what you see is the rise of these massive party committees, which are just raising tons and tons of money, uh, which is you know coming from very wealthy donors, for the most part, corporate donors, and is going straight. Into advertising, and so you have this rise of this consultant class, which is basically standardizing the messaging uh, for uh, candidates. So, you know, in the past, candidates would you know wouldn't spend all that much money on advertising or television. They would have local organizations, they would have local political parties that were connected to community groups, and much closer to their constituents, but. The sort of collapse of local political parties and the rise of television shifts the, uh, the the way in which campaigning happens, makes money more important. Parties pick up on this. They standardize the message and they nationalize the message. And so that's, you know, Gingrich is really just picking up on those trends uh, and just kind of turning it up another notch, you know, he's much more uh, deliberate about trying to bring corporations in uh, to to fund the Republican Party and to give them uh, special privileges in writing of legislation, because he thinks that's the way to, to uh, make Republicans more successful. Uh, I mean, Democrats are, are guilty of a lot of this, too, in the 90s. And, you know, that, of course, drives increasing Inequality in our economy as as the public policy apparatus uh, you know, moves towards the, the very well off. And, you know, that makes it easier for the parties to raise money, makes them more attuned, makes the uh, many people angrier at politics because they feel like they're not being represented, which then further fuels polarization because the the goal, particularly of the Republican Party, is to put more of the emphasis on cultural issues, which drives anger and donations and distracts people from the uh, ways in which the Republican Party is selling them out. But also, to some extent, the Democratic Party and there's sort of this, you know, uh, agreement on a broad neoliberal agenda, which means that the parties become more focused on the cultural fight, which is particularly important to their donors. And all of this kind of feeds on itself. I and mean, there's a bunch of uh, bunch of forces that are all reinforcing each other in this. Yeah. In okay. This so,
1: so it's very convincing that we're in this awful place because of all of these forces. And and I think your book is very convincing about where it would be better to be um, in a world with multiple parties yes. that were competing in a way that was similar to the way competition might have happened in the 1960s. Um, the, the, the moment of anxiety, though, is getting from here to there. I mean, I can, I can exp- you know, when I read your book, I was in the middle of writing um, a piece that tried to. Articulate a particular strategy to bring about multiple parties, like a, like a. I thought there was a particular innovation that could bring it about, and it would bring about the easy division of Republicans and the division of Democrats. And then I decided I didn't want to publish it because because I actually am not sure that's what I want to happen right now. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to give up the old ways or the old way of thinking because we feels like we're in such a critical moment right now, and so. You know, do you continue to feel like you can with with you know full force and conviction, say, Democrats divide, and Republicans I mean, it might be easier to say Republicans divide because we see a clear division in the Republican Party. But in the Democratic Party, even if there's an ideological division, there seems to be much more cohesion right now. And I just wonder whether it still feels like the right step to be taking in the next, let's say, four years?
0: Well. I think it is. I mean, you know, obviously, I think the the, the most urgent thing is to to pass HR one. Um, I mean that 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 is the thing that's right in front of us, and you know, I think that's a, a extremely important legislation. But you know, I think that you know, even even with the passage of, of HR one, uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure that Democrats hold the House uh, or the Senate, and you know, I, I think we. We continue to be stuck in this moment in you know, which you know, po- power continues to shift back and forth, and the Republican Party becomes even more radicalized and illiberal. And you know the the danger of that to me is the most pressing danger uh, that that what we have right now is a party that is being dominated by. A world view that you know, is become fundamentally uh, conspiracy minded, liberal, and, and anti democratic. And you know, it, in some ways, you know, it's the two party system that created that because there was no other alternative for folks on the right. Uh, whereas Donald Trump took over the party, other than to to kind of. Fall into into line, Uh, but you know I I think the the crucial uh, continuation of democracy depends on a uh, conservative party that believes in pluralism, that believes in elections, that is not enthralled to whatever conspiracy uh, happens to be circulating that justifies their role as heroes of of American democracy. And the only way to allow for that conservative party to win uh, enough seats uh, that it can get into government is to have a a more proportional system of voting. And, you know, I think it's also important. I mean, political parties give people identities and that right now, unless you're a Democrat, you're... A Republican, or you're, you know, somehow outside of politics, and you know there ought to be another identity that you can have on the right that's not, you know, fully Trumpist. I think there are are a, a lot of folks who, you know, are just kind of follow politics in a in a very passive way, uh, who you know m- might be attracted to a, a different identity that's not, you know, full on Trump culture war. Uh, kind of paranoid garbage, but, you know, th- there's no there's no alternative for that. I mean, you, you look at, you know, European democracies and there are certainly far-right, uh, you know, xenophobic, liberal parties, you know, but they're at 15, 20% and you have governing coalitions that form, uh, that exclude them. I mean, if, if the left splits up into a social democratic party and a, you know, more... Uh, moderate, you know, pro-business Democratic Party, you know, th- they might compete separately electorally, uh, but they would almost certainly uh, work together in government. And, you know, I think they'd probably both be stronger without each other in the sense that, you know, the, the centrist Democratic Party could run without being attached to a, you know, abolish the police message and a more progressive social Democratic Party could run without... Uh, you know, having to apologize for the, the more pro-corporate wing of the party. They could reach different voters. And uh, I, I think that would actually help them as well as, you know, there could be a few other parties that would form. Uh, uh, it would also mean, I mean, for, for Democrats, I think especially, uh, you know, the single winner system is really... Uh, Bad for the party of the cities and there's a, a wonderful book by mm-hmm. jonathan rod stanford professor uh called why cities lose which is you know a very thorough discussion of the ways in which single member districts uh punish the party of the cities because their votes are just distributed a lot less efficiently uh it, it also you know a more proportional system would also effectively render gerrymandering useless or at best no. marginal so so we
1: so we certainly agree the about the critical need to pass hr1 and we agree that even if we pass hr1 the democrats might lose um i would say we should complement that recognition by saying that if we don't pass hr1 then the combination of vote suppression bills and gerrymandering means the Democrats will almost certainly lose, yes. even though the Republicans have fewer votes. So we, you know, we could we could plausibly enter a stage of minoritarian government in the United States with the Supreme Court that says it's not our job to fix your problems. Yeah. And that, so and that could last at
0: least a, a decade.
1: Yeah, yeah. The other, but the other point that I think is really important about you endorsing HR one so strongly is that you actually describe a package of reform very close to the reform that you know i put together as the citizen equality act of 19 uh, of 2017 which is not quite hr1 i mean it has a public funding component you support public funding i support public funding i am much more enamored of vouchers because i think that chance for amplifying the extremes is less but um, you know that's that might be a quibble but what we agree on is the really valuable innovation of multi-member ranked choice districts, Um, which, of course, H.R. 1 doesn't establish. H.R. 1 keeps us in our single-member districts. It just eliminates part of the partisan input into the gerrymandering process. So it's not quite as much as we want. And then, obviously, we all agree that we need fundamental protection for the right to vote, the John Lewis Act, I think, um, you know, which is Title I here and part of Title II is is essential, but but it is striking that there's still more work to be done, even if we got HR1 to get us to the place that you want us to be, where the forces of diversity could manifest themselves as multiple parties, rather yes. than continue to be in the structure of this doom loop.
0: Right, and, and I, I mean, I should say there is. Legislation, the the Fair Representation Act, which was right. um, four thousand HR four thousand, the last Congress, and will be reintroduced in the current Congress. That would do a lot of this, and I think the new version uh, will will be even uh, better. So, I, I think that's you know, something that a lot that more and more people are looking towards. You know, I mean, I think the challenge is that you know for a lot of folks. Uh, this is a this is a new idea, and yeah. you know it's not something that they've thought a lot about. It's it's not an idea that has been you know kicking around for over a decade. I mean, most most of the provisions in in HR one are are not new ideas. They're ideas that have been the mainstay of uh, good governing uh, commissions and good government government groups, and you know have. have Sort of all, all the endorsements, uh, people have run all the traps on them. Uh, so, you know, in many ways, uh, it's uh, all, all the all the policies there are in the the sort of late stage of policy development. Yes, uh, yeah. and you know I think the you know a, a lot of folks don't really understand what multi-member districts are, or if they think about them, they think about them in the context of at-large voting, which was used to uh, yes. undermine the blacks. the yeah. uh, vote of, of minorities in an earlier era. And, you know, this is fundamentally different when you have a proportional voting system and you have ranked choice voting. Uh, it, it actually elevates the voices of minority constituents because it, you know, it, it means that they don't have to be in majority-minority districts in order to elect their candidate of choice. Um, You know, it solves fundamental problems around both racial and partisan gerrymandering. Uh, And, you know, it means that, you know, everybody gets to vote in a competitive election. And I think that's the most important uh, thing is that, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, ways to increase voter participation for a long, long time in the U.S. And, you know, it seems like most of these interventions only move the needle at the margins. And, you know, there's a very simple reason for that, which is that you know, people are not idiots. And, you know, they know when their vote doesn't matter because they live in a district that's overwhelmingly Democratic or Republican. Uh, and, you know, a lot of folks also are pretty dissatisfied with the two parties. And you know, so why am I going to vote when it doesn't make all that much a, much of a difference for people like me? Uh, this recent election, I think more people felt that it did make a difference, which is why there's a high level of turnout. Uh, But in a system of single winner elections, the uh, majority of districts and states are safe for one party or the other. So the parties themselves don't invest in turnout. They don't invest in building local organizations that would engage citizens. And you know, the the elected officials themselves are not all that accountable because they have basically safe seats and you know as long as they can make sure to fend off a primary challenger which most of them do successfully you know they're golden so you know,
1: it's so a- under hr one do you, are you are you encouraged that the existing structure hr1 describes would encourage third parties i mean like the green party has been. Very skeptical, and, and some have been quite vocal in opposing HR one because they think it's going to make it harder for them to run presidential candidates. I mean, do you think that's just mistaken, or there I there
0: mean, I, I don't. Uh, I, it seems seems like a, a small quibble, um, you know. I and you know the yeah. You know, I mean, certainly we should have more ballot access, uh, you know, for for multiple parties. I mean, but you know, particularly, I'd, I'd encourage. Parties to be focusing on you know, local elections and even congressional elections. I mean, you know, uh, you're not going to have a, a third party candidate for president until we fundamentally change how we elect yes. the president. Um, but you might have more third parties running successfully in in Congress, uh, and you know, I mean, broadly, I mean, I think the the you know the Green Party and others are. Broadly supportive of reforms that would move us to a more proportional system, multi-member districts, and ranked choice voting, and that's you know I I think you know that's that's the next generation of reforms, and I think more and more folks in the democracy space have uh, been thinking about this and have have warmed up to the idea, or at least you know are are asking. The right questions about it, and you know, so I think that's that's where the conversation is moving.
1: So that would be the that would be the HR four thousand. I mean, if HR one passes, what's the next public funding reform?
0: What's the next public funding reform? Um, so HR one, you know, we'll have the the six to one match uh, for uh, public financing for small dollars, which I. I Think is a potentially transformative uh, move that you know shifts the way in which campaigns are funded. Although I I think you know, in many ways, we're we're already a lot of the way there, as uh, more and more money is raised online through these sort of Act Blue or Win Red, uh, you know, style style packs. Uh, So. I'm, you know, I'm sort of uncertain where that, where how how that is changing campaigns for the long run, uh, because I think it's it's now, you know, easier than ever to raise a lot of money from small donors. I mean, you look at the success of the Sanders campaign. You know, is somewhat remarkable, and I don't think Sanders, you know, could have even. You know, could have raised that much money eight years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. There's been a sort of transformation. So, you know, I, I, am I'm, I'm not sure. To be honest, mm-hmm. uh, curious, curious, what you think?
1: Um. Well, I'll have to be on your podcast to explain what I <laughs> think. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I, but we're we're at the end, and I'm I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful for your book. And well, thank um, you. It's That's important. Very kind of you. It's an important. Idea, set of ideas to have out there right now and to get people to begin to understand and rally around because I think you're right about what the right solution looks like even if we're not yet clear about how we get there and I'm really happy to join the fight with eight for HR 4000 once we have HR1 yes well so that's that's very
0: important me too so, I'm, I'm, I'm more focused on HR1 right now but yeah yeah but
1: um, okay well so thank you so much uh, Lee and um, uh, we look forward to the next book
0: All right. Well, it was a real pleasure to have this conversation. I really enjoyed it.
1: That's our episode. This is a series, as we've announced frequently, filling out the argument for H.R. 1. And as you heard here in this interview, Lee Drutman also believes the critical next step is H.R. 1, even though we all agree there's work to be done after H.R. 1 has passed, um, we will continue this conversation about the critical points arguing for the urgent need for HR1. Um, and we're going to work, I'm going to work, who's the we? I'm going to work here to include, again, some more conversations from people who find themselves or believe themselves to be on the other side. It's a striking moment on that side. This week, yesterday, Mitch McConnell, who had celebrated Citizens United as one of the greatest decisions of the Supreme Court, empowering corporations to spend unlimited amounts of money in politics, Mitch McConnell has now decided that the corporation should shut up. And if that's not bad enough, they're talking about special taxes that the government should pass to punish these corporations for speaking in ways that the Republicans or Mitch McConnell doesn't like. So it's a striking moment to realize that we're not only in a moment where people believe unlimited money should have voice. They also believe the government should be disciplining unlimited money when the voice it exercises is not one the government likes. If there would be one fundamental idea we should be able to agree on, it's that there's no role for government— in picking sides in a debate and punishing the side it doesn't like. Maybe at the extremes. What I've spoken about is militant democracy on some of these podcasts where the democracy protects itself against anti-democratic influence. Okay, maybe at the extremes. But when we're talking about core democratic policy issues, the idea that the government would punish through taxes... Aside side in the debate it does not like? That ought to be something that people on the left and the right agree is fundamentally un-American. Yet that's where we are. It's the beginning of April 2021. Let's see what progress we can make. These podcasts are produced by equalcitizens.us. You can find us on the web at equalcitizens.us slash anotherway please go there. It's such an interesting webpage. Maybe the, I mean, I've, you know, objectively you can Google this, the most interesting webpage in, well, Cambridge, let's say that the most interesting webpage in cam Well, okay. Maybe one of the top 10 most interesting webpages in Cambridge. But the point is it's a really interesting page because on that page you can say, here's what you should be talking about, or here's who you should be talking to, or here are the ideas you've got to start considering more carefully because you obviously don't yet get it. That's the feedback i love to receive, and that's what we gotta got to find a way to encourage more of because um, this has to be less read-only and more read-write. So go there, give your feedback, find the link to share this podcast, and let's find more who can join this conversation. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. I'm hoping, pending the agreement of the next interviewee, which I'm hoping I'm going to see when I open my email right now. This is Larry Lessig. Thanks for listening.